This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Thanks for joining me, and welcome to the channel. I just finished Skyping with Morgan Patelka to talk about his new book, Spectacular Accumulation, Material Culture, Tokugawa Ieyasu, and Samurai Sociability. Now, this came out in 2016 in a really beautiful edition with the University of Hawaii Press. And I mention that in part because one of the major themes and major kind of fields that the book engages with is material culture and the importance of material objects as actors and as agents. And the book itself becomes an important historical agent and a really beautiful material object insofar that it's amply illustrated with lots and lots of color images of lots and lots of the materials, the objects, the depiction or depictions of the events that are um, analyzed in the book. Now, this is important not just because it means that the experience of the reader is that much more rich and that much more pleasurable as a result of this decision to illustrate the book so beautifully and so amply, but it also becomes important to one of the arguments that the book makes. So one of the really important kinds of work that the book does is to take a period um, that we usually think of as sort of a late 16th um, and into the 17th century in Japan, that we think of it in so far as it's dominated by some key individual male figures, right? And you'll, t- you'll hear about these three unifiers and the way that they shape the story in the hour to come. But it takes this period and it asks us to think about the ways that other kinds of objects were really important historical actors and historical agents that really fundamentally shaped what happened in this period and what continues to happen now. And those objects include falcons, um, they include severed heads, they include swords, objects of tea practice, and lots and lots of other kinds of things. And so by giving us this this opportunity and ability to appreciate at least the visuality of these objects and to experience them not just as textual representations, the book really helps us, I think, emphasize the importance of these objects as actors in the story. So what the book does is look at the ways, uh, among other things, that collecting and exchanging um, and sort of ritualizing practices that are social practices and material practices around objects was really crucial to the culture of politics and sociability and warfare in this period. This is a book that highlights the social life of things in the 16th and into the 17th century in Tokugawa, Japan, and it helps us understand, and you'll hear about this in the hour to come, the ways that a particular kind of discourse surrounding, especially Tokugawa Ieyasu in this context, in the 16th and, and then into the 17th century, continues to shape the way that the Tokugawa period, and Ieyasu in particular, is understood, is memorialized, is remembered, is displayed in museums with pretty significant social and political consequences for us right now. So it's a book about the Tokugawa, but it's also a book about history and historiography and material culture that really links the practices of history and historiography then and now, and what I think is a really compelling story. 
So with that, I will leave you to it um, and just say that this is a book that's definitely um, or definitely should be on your to-read list if you're remotely interested in not just early modern Japan and early modern culture, but also the history of objects and the history of material culture, or if you're just interested in a bunch of really compelling stories. I hope you enjoy. I'm very grateful um, for your support of the channel and for listening, and I will catch you soon. I'm here today with Morgan Patelka to talk about his new book, Spectacular Accumulation. Welcome to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, Morgan, and thanks very much both for writing a book that's so interesting and for making time to talk with me about it today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Carla. Of course. So, Morgan, let's start with the traditional question for the podcast, and that is the big question. How did you come to work on Japan, and why this particular period, the early modern, um, in Japanese history? So, there are many different answers to that question, of course, <laughs> and I think all of us get asked a lot, some variety of that uh, question. But I, I, I was thinking about this uh, when I was listening to some of the other recent podcasts that you've done and listening to people answer. And I realized that for me, the, the particular connections in this book especially go back very, very far in my life. When I was growing up in Northern California, my father was a potter, a production potter, a ceramicist. And my mother managed these two weird hippie movie theaters that used to show a lot of samurai films. And somehow that early influence kind of came together later in college when I became interested in studying Japan. And so my work actually has mostly been about those things. My work has been mostly about ceramics and the samurai. And I imagine that in my, you know, 11-year-old brain, when my favorite actor in the world was Mifune Toshiro, you know, the star of so many Kurosawa films. Uh, and I was learning to make ceramics from my father, who later became an art professor. My mother later became a history professor that I just sort of mushed all that stuff together and ended up doing this work. Wow. That is one of the most interesting answers to that question that anyone has ever given. And that's completely awesome. And I love it. Well, so, <laughs> so let's actually get to the book at hand. Um, how did you come? I'm going to kind of leave it to you to give your um, overview of what um, the how you would articulate the topic of the book um, as a kind of experiment now. So I'll just um, hit this back to you. How did you come to work on this particular focus um, for this book manuscript? Sure. Well, this is my second major research project. Uh, my first book, based on my dissertation, was a study of the Raku ceramic tradition in Japan, which, of course, started in the 16th century, but then has continued as a single genealogy, a single line, mm -hmm. uh, all the way up to the present day, uh, informed very much by tea culture, chanoyu. Um, and I... I really found, I think, my voice and, and my method as a historian, someone who uses material culture and sort of weighs it and measures it against a range of documentary evidence um, in that project. And I knew I wanted to do something similar in my second project, but I, I wanted to move away from tea, uh, partially because it's it, in Japan, the scholarly community that works on tea culture is fairly insular, pretty political. And I didn't want to become... Uh, as I've said many times, the tea bowl guy, someone who just wrote exclusively about tea bowls, although I continue to love tea and the world of ceramics. I, I was having trouble, I think, through my own naivete, convincing other historians that my work was legitimate history. Now, of course, we've now gone through the material turn, and I think everyone recognizes that material culture is a really important part of, of history and anthropology and art history in many fields. But at that time, you know, I'm talking about the sort of mid to late 90s, mm -hmm. materiality in the study of history was still fairly uh, marginal. And... So I thought, okay, people seem to care a lot about political history and about the samurai. And there also is this robust literature in Japan on the samurai as art patrons, art collectors, consumers of art. And so I started to imagine a project that would use warriors as collectors as a way of addressing the role of material culture in pre-modern Japanese politics, um, while still staying true to my interest in tea and ceramics and those sorts of topics. Uh, and the more research I did preliminarily into really significant warrior collectors, the more I realized that the 16th century uh, is the, the period when you see this kind of epic larger-than-life 
mode of collecting occurring. Uh, and so I decided to work primarily on Tokugawa Ieyasu, the warlord who is known as the third of the three unifiers of this age of national reunification, as it sometimes is called, but also the founder of the Tokugawa shogunate, the military government that ruled Japan in the early modern period. So I don't actually consider this an early modern project per se. It's really about the transition from medieval to early modern and the role of material culture in the politics of that period. Great. Thank you so much. Now let's kind of dive into it. One of the things I really love about the book um, in terms of the writerly craft that you've brought to this is that each one of the chapters, and this includes the prologue and the epilogue, open with a vignette that kind of set the stage and bring us into the middle of the action before then stepping back out again um, to look at the overview and see why we're there and where we're going from there. So the opening vignette in the prologue involves, um, among other things, retrieving and repairing fragments of swords and of ceramics from the ashes of Osaka Castle in 1615. Now, this is a really wonderful moment to open on for many reasons. Um, I think it's really evocative, and it also allows you to show us the ways that several pieces from this moment actually enter the Tokugawa collection as a result, including a tea caddy named Tsukomo Nasu. And for listeners, these objects um, that we're going to talk about are often named in the book, and we um, might talk about that over the course of our conversation. Now, one of the great things that you show us um, is also an x-ray image of this particular tea caddy, which shows how it was put back together from fragments. And at least from the image of the whole thing, that's not an x-ray. You can't really see that necessarily from the surface. Okay. Um, and, I, and I also wanted to mention that right off the bat, because one of the things that um, listeners will find when they get their hands on a copy of the book is that... Um, from the very beginning, there are ample, really fabulous color images all over the book that are just such an important part of the work that the book does, and I really oh, love Oh, thank that. you. Okay, so the prologue continues. I'll just set the stage briefly and, and then hit it over to you. The prologue um, continues by laying the foundation for the book. So the book looks closely, um, as you've just described, at the material culture of these three unifiers that you briefly mentioned of the late 16th century in order to, in the words of of the book foreground the politics of culture in an age of civil war. Now, the chapters do this by looking very closely at the role of sociability in the interactions between warlords and other powerful figures, and they focus on cultural practices and rituals like tea ceremony and gift exchange. And we'll talk about examples when we talk about the chapters to come. Okay, so let's dive in. Now, as the chapter would indicate, spectacular accumulation, there's um, a pretty major organizing trope of the book. And you introduced this right at the beginning, and I'd love for you to introduce this to listeners now. So briefly put, can you talk about this idea of spectacular accumulation as it shapes um, the direction that you're taking these case studies in the book? Sure. Well, this phrase is my attempt to move beyond discussion of the collection. Um, there's, there's actually a really robust field of histories of collecting and histories of collectors. And I've been fascinated by that field ever since I was a graduate student. Uh, there's incredibly rich theoretical writing from people like Walter Benjamin, uh, Susan Stewart. Uh, there, are, there is dense uh, historical uh, research done on individual collectors in history. I'm sure you know Pat Ebrey's amazing work on Emperor, what is it, Hoizong, mm -hmm. uh, as, a, as a collector, but also an emperor. So, I mean, it, it's such a vibrant field. But I felt somehow that the the notion of the collector and the practice of collecting alone didn't quite capture what I wanted to emphasize in the book, which is, as the phrase spectacular accumulation indicates, I think evidence that it was both the spectacle of acquiring and displaying things, um, but also the uh, creation of larger and larger storehouses of things combined that made this a really important form of politics in the 16th century. Um, and, and as I worked on the book, I also came to the realization that it wasn't only what we would now call art objects that were um, being displayed and collected in really significant ways, but indeed people and people's body parts. And so I, I, I had a kind of epiphany that instead of thinking of the world of culture, the world of uh, the tea ceremony and no theater and uh, literature and all of that, 
on one hand and thinking of the world of the military arts and the, the kind of pain and dread of the field of battle on the other hand as separate, that there was a politics that united them and a kind of optics that united them and that that was what I wanted to drill down into in the book. Great. Now, one major historiographical goal of the project, as stated pretty early on, is to challenge a prevailing tendency in work on late 16th century Japan. And this historiographical tendency is, in the words of the book, to privilege the unification of the country as a process of early modern institution building and progress toward the nation state. Instead, the book aims to, again, in the words of the book, relink war and culture. Okay. Um, did you want to say a little bit about that as um, a historiographical goal? I mean, it speaks a little bit to what you've just been talking about, but um, is there anything more you'd like to add along the, those lines? Sure. I mean, I, I will say that from my entry into academia, I was really committed to challenging uh, the kind of dominant discourses of the field. And uh, as I read through the secondary literature on uh, late medieval Japan, as a graduate student, I noticed this tendency to kind of glorify the three unifiers and to, to really privilege the actions of these epic individuals rather than doing social history, basically. But because I'm interested in material culture, all the best stuff was collected by elites. And so my, pro my first project on the Raku family and the Senti masters ended up really studying these commoner elites. And then when I went looking for the best warrior collectors, surprise, surprise, those were the most powerful and wealthiest men in the lands. So much to my almost chagrin, I discovered that I was writing at one phase, essentially a biography of Tokugawa Ieyasu. Mm -hmm. And I realized that wasn't that wasn't what I wanted to do. It wasn't what I had set out to do. I had set out to look at the practice of collecting in the politics of the period. So I actually had to do some major rewrites on the book and reconfigure it through several stages to figure out how to prioritize objects and their deployment in this period in a way that would acknowledge that they were they were collected by and displayed by the most powerful warriors of the period, but that that actually showed that the traditional historiographical narratives about who they were and why they mattered could be complicated further. Now, I'm actually really interested in the kind of craft and the practice of rewriting. And we didn't talk about this in the, uh, you know, this is a second uh, major monograph. So this wasn't a process whereby you were going from dissertation to book, right? Right, right. But, um, but this is actually really interesting to hear about for other, well, for myself and maybe other listeners who also might be um, kind of in the weeds or looking ahead or looking back at the process of rewriting, you know, taking yeah. something that you've made and um, reshaping it and transforming it, getting rid of some stuff in order to make it into what you think you want it to be. Yeah. Um, for you, was there anything about that process that was particularly helpful? Like when you went into this rewriting process, what uh, kind of what advice might you take out of that? Or what was particularly notable and helpful about that for you? Well, it was it was a painful process for me because I I lost. I basically lost control of my own writing yeah. process. I got into a mode over a period of several years, including a year-long sabbatical, where I was trying to just write every day. And I sort of said, well, even if what I'm writing isn't really what I want, at least I'm writing. Mm -hmm. And I ended up producing a book that was driven by the biography of Ieyasu and that was chronological and that had it posed really interesting questions. And then at the end of a chapter, the end of the book would sort of revisit them as if they had been answered. But that in the details of the body chapters was really just sort of marching relentlessly through this guy's life because there's so much docu documentary evidence. And it's so easy to become kind of entranced by how important he was. And so everything he did must have been significant, right? Like if on this day he went to this castle and fought in this battle on the next day, he issued this edict. That almost matter because he's Tokugawa Ieyasu, right? And, and so it took a reader who... A very, a very smart reader who could lay it out for me and say, look, this book is claiming to be argument driven or this manuscript is claiming to be argument driven, but is actually a very kind of rote biography. It has to decide which it wants to be. If it's going to be a biography, it needs to engage with the theory and craft of biographical writing, of life stories. It needs to review other biographies. It needs to wade into that field. But if it wants to be argument driven, it has to figure out what those arguments are and actually have them thread through every chapter. And I 
I wanted it to be thematic and argument driven. So I just set aside the manuscript and sort of poached from it in the process of rewriting a new book. And that took another year at least. If that only took another year, then that's I was was driven because I was really I was in a difficult place when I realized that the manuscript I had produced was not what I wanted. And I and I I didn't want that to stay true. I wanted I wanted the book to feel to sit comfortably with me, first of all. So so that was what drove that process. Now, this is actually also really interesting to hear, because one of the things that I think the book does really well, and we'll talk about this in a couple chapters, is to and I think this is compelling is to try to destabilize a way of treating this period just in terms of major kind of heroic men who are the actors and to put the tea caddies and to put the swords and to put, um, you know, the severed heads, um, for example, back into a place or into a place of agency, um, treating them as ambassadors, treating them as vassals in some cases. So I think um, that was a a really courageous and really wise decision (laughs) on your part as a writer. Thank you. So let's dive into the first chapter. Okay. This is a chapter that looks at the resonance between two kinds of practices that might not to listeners um, or readers immediately seem related. One is the elite warrior acquisition of Chinese art in the 16th century, and the other is the objectification of human beings in the form of hostile ex- uh, hostage rather exchanges. Okay, so there's lots of really interesting um, uh, accounts that are here that we're not going to have time to talk too much about, including um, an opening bank banquet by Oda Nobunaga, Mm. where the skulls of three warlords are displayed. (laughs) And you also talk about the importance of tea culture um, in this context. But rather than asking you to talk about particular cases, I'll leave it up to you to talk about whatever you'd like in order to open up um, this larger issue. So briefly put, can you talk about what you think is most interesting about these resonances between the acquisition of art objects and hostage exchange, kind of the acquisition and circulation? of people in this period. Sure. I, I, I'm trying to intervene here in two discourses, essentially, that I think are, are problematic because they're anachronistic, and, and they also connect to some of the ways in which narratives about Japanese history, I think, are used problematically to support notions of modern Japanese identity and, and Japanese sort of national culture in a, in a nationalistic way. So the first of those discourses is about the history of tea. Uh, in the history of tea, there's a very strong emphasis on the tea master Sen Norikyu, uh, who was a commoner who served Toyotomi Hideyoshi, was forced to commit suicide, and then his ancestors and, and uh, or sorry, his descendants rather, and followers founded all these commoner tea schools that have come to dominate the landscape of tea culture in Japan all the way up to the present. And there's a, there's a very strong tendency to privilege commoners and merchants as being the primary actors in sort of the invention of this distinctive culture of tea. And part of what I wanted to show in this chapter was that warriors, and particularly very powerful warriors, uh, the Ashikaga shoguns, the various um, warlords of the Age of Warring States, or the Sengoku period, and then the three unifiers, I think played instrumental roles in creating the culture of tea. Uh, So that's one intervention that's not really, I don't really foreground that. There were so many issues at play that I didn't want to make a meal out of that. But that's part of what I'm trying to do in the chapter. The other thing I'm trying to do is I'm trying to counter the vision of the samurai as patrons of the arts in the the post-war sanitized version that I think is quite common in museum exhibitions and and in Japan. People often talk about the Tokugawa, uh, even Toyotomi Hideyoshi, who's who's notable for for many acts of extreme violence, as these generous, almost sort of gregarious patrons. And you can kind of picture some fat cat in the box seat at the Met, you know, giving money to the opera, you know, oh, that's what they were like. And I think that's preposterous. I mean, I, I, I really wanted to show that collecting tea caddies and exchanging hostages or marrying off daughters, uh, giving away sons uh, to guarantee your own political position, that these were related political acts for warriors and warlords who were in this constant kind of chess game of negotiation with the, the other powers around them in the 16th century, this era of, of civil war. And in, in some ways, I think it's the main contribution of the book is simply to say, we have separated these practices because we are modern. 
and because it, it, it suited the needs of post-war Japan to kind of sanitize its own cultural history. But that is a profound act of, of anachronism and, and misremembering. And we need to understand how the samurai were both fundamentally involved in the world of tea and how tea to them was connected to acts of war and practices of violence. Great. And that move to push back against tendencies toward anachronism and misremembering is something that we're going to see come up over and over again, I think, really usefully throughout the book. So thank you for mentioning that now, because it's a theme that I think we'll come back to. Great. Um, so also the theme of hostages and the importance of hostages also takes on another kind of importance at the end of this chapter. And I'll just mention this um, and then we'll move on. Um, but this is also a chapter that introduces the story of um, a really important hostage. This is actually Tokugawa Ieyasu, who mm. rose from um, life as a hostage to a warlord. Um, and this becomes an important part of the story. And it's introduced here early on. So as we move forward into the next chapter, um, we move into another um, chapter that really foregrounds, among other things, the importance of the deployment of tea as a kind of political object, a political act, a form of political practice. So chapter two looks at elite warriors in the late 16th century. It focuses on their public and social uses of material culture, especially on the display and circulation of prized objects. And it asks a question, and this is a question in the words of the book. What were the social and cultural effects and implications of the instrumentalization of famous objects in elite warrior society? So after um, a really, really interesting account of a massive tea gathering sponsored by Hideyoshi in 1587, mm. um, and a really, again, interesting account of the tea utensils of Oda Nobunaga, and um, interestingly, the sort of the importance of um, the privilege and really the um, foregrounding of the fact that it was a privilege to be allowed to acquire tea utensils under Nobunaga, right? Right. You take us into this really fascinating case. Okay, this is a case um, where a tea caddy, um, a tea caddy named First Flower, mm. becomes a kind of ambassador mm. in the relationship between Ieyasu and Hideyoshi. And I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about this case and what you think is most compelling, because this is a case that um, is really important for highlighting um, the, wor uh, the, the fact that art had, or works of art, had historical agency here. Um, and you use this to bring out the problem of agency as a historical force. And if you can hear my cat in the background, she's meowing like, yes, please <laughs> talk about First Flower as an ambassador and the problem of objects um, as historical agents. So Morgan, can you talk a little bit about that for us? Yeah, so that's a timely reminder of the agency of non-human exactly. actors. So I'm exactly. I'm thankful I'm to your your uh, actor network theory cat in the background. She's very um, thoughtful. <laughs> so this uh, anecdote is was was really helpful for me when I when I sort of figure out figured out how I wanted to use it narratively because it is a moment when these larger than life warlords. Um, are revealed to not always have that much power over their own situations. So uh, very, very briefly, Toyotomi Hideyoshi has avenged the death of Oda Nobunaga and continued the process of unifying and pacifying Japan. And there are a few major warlords who hold out against him, who, who don't join him. And one of those warlords is Tokugawa Ieyasu, who was, of course, a close ally of Nobunaga's. Uh, and Ieyasu is too powerful for Hideyoshi just to destroy. Uh, they actually do have some battles in which there's a kind of stalemate. So um, he he decides instead to essentially use propaganda, and he sends letters and things to Ieyasu's vassals, and he trumpets very loudly all of his successes, and eventually one of um, Ieyasu's vassals betrays him and goes over to Hideyoshi's side, and it was one of his most important and trusted vassals. And I argue that this betrayal, um, the catalyst for this betrayal, was the vassal's delivery of this famous object, this meibutsu, this um, tea caddy named First Flower that you mentioned, to Hideyoshi previously in their history. And and so in a way, the, the social need to give gifts created a relationship, potentially. I mean, this is, of course entirely my own um, guesswork here, but but created the possibility of a relationship that then enabled the vassal to recognize that the time was right for him to jump ship 
and join Hideyoshi. There's so much speculation here that, you know, it's not really a, a, a kind of historical moment that's worth recording in the in the, the textbooks about Japanese history. But I think even the possibility of, of it having unfolded the way I, I suggest might be true shows us that objects have the potential to kind of seize the moment and affect change um, by becoming the the object of display the object of accumulation the 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 subject in a performance that is really of course about the social relationships between warriors but becomes at that moment about the thing and um the there are lots of great theories about the agency of objects that i that i have read and that have inspired my thinking about this but in the end i didn't need to to theorize too much here it's so clear that in this culture where Objects are given proper names. They have really robust histories and biographies. Uh, their pedigree is as important as their aesthetic um, sort of formal qualities. It's very clear these objects are powerful. And this example, which eventually leads to Tokugawa Ieyasu joining Toyotomi Hideyoshi as a, an inferior, right, as a follower, essentially, um, literally changes the course of Japanese history. And uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful illustration of, of what the book is trying to do. Now, this importance of gift exchange and gift giving um, really continues into the next chapter, which opens with what I, I mean, a wonderfully absurd account. <laughs> I'm like increasingly absurd, right, of this gift exchange between Ieyasu um, and Toyotomi Hideyori, the, the uh, son of Hideyoshi, right? So right. it starts... Well, I, actually, can you just tell us the story? Because it starts with, like, for listeners who aren't familiar with this, the functional equivalent of, here, have a horse. Right. Oh, thank you so much for this horse. Here, have three horses and also a pearl necklace. Oh, thank right. you so much. Here, have an elephant, ten horses, three pearl necklaces, <laughs> and a circus. Oh, thank you so much. I'm like back and forth and over yeah. and over again. It's just this like incredibly fascinating, absurd account. So um, can you take us into this gift exchange um, and maybe sort of tell us a little bit about what you think is important about this moment in, insofar as it sets up the work that you're trying to do here in this chapter? Sure. And I'll, I'll also refer back to our earlier discussion of the problem of revising the book. Um, one of the things that, that writing a chronological biographical narrative created for me was that I was locked in the, the, the kind of relentless momentum of a life lived always facing into the future. So day after day after day, you have to kind of deal with each problem as it comes up in someone's life. Whereas making the book, changing the book so that it was driven by these thematic argument-driven chapters allowed me to tell the story out of order, right? So I can jump forward to the period after Tokugawa Ieyasu won at the Battle of Sekigahara, after he became shogun, uh, after he stepped down from the position of shogun and became retired shogun, and when the only potential threat to the hegemony of the Tokugawa in the land is the son of Toyotomi Hideyoshi, this young man Hideyori, who symbolizes the potential of of a, of a government that now has seemingly been lost, of, of a Toyotomi regime, of a Toyotomi period, and who's a very attractive, well-educated young man who lives in the largest castle in Japan, and who on this occasion makes a trip to Kyoto, very delicate in terms of how it was politically managed and arranged, that ends up seemingly resulting in a successful performance on both sides of the fact that the Tokugawa are supreme, but the Toyotomi still matter. And so this is the kind of epilogue to that story where they send each other presents and each man wants to have the last word. And they're both, I think, trying to express something about the position of their families in Japan at the moment, but also in Japanese history. Um, one is no peripheral inferior, and one is the central power. And um, that's never articulated in words, but it does seem to be articulated through this record of these gifts exchanged. So it's a, it's a fun way of saying that when warriors exchange swords or horses or ceramics, it's, uh, it's a kind of conversation. Great. Now, the chapter pays uh, special attention to Ieyasu's career and to the special role, as we've just been talking about, of gift exchange in wartime society. 
So the chapter argues, and this is in the words of the chapter, that sociability was a tool for dominance and aggression as much as it was for civility in this context. And here the chapter is pushing back against um, some previous work that tends to treat sociability um, outside the context in Japanese society of um, this kind of very you know aggressive wartime, um, violent right kind of exchange. Now you bring us into here, um, among other things, uh, a moment where Hideyoshi had planned to invade the Korean Peninsula in 1592. Um, this was really, really important historically. This was part of a ultimately um, a, the effort to take over the Ming. Um, it didn't quite work, um, no. and right, um, but it's it, it's a really fascinating moment. So in this case and in this moment, you show us here that for a warrior who was preparing for battle, these practices of sociability, right, gift exchange, other kinds of social rituals were actually a crucial part of those preparations. So one of the things the chapter does really interestingly is it brings us into battle preparations in a way that includes things like gift giving as part of preparation for war, right? And this isn't necessarily what some readers um, are going to come to this chapter thinking about when they imagine and think about preparations for war. Okay, um, so I'd love if you could talk a little bit about that for us, but specifically this um, one of the phrases that I, or one of the terms that I just used, ritual, um, allows us to bring out here something that is really crucial for the work that the book does that comes up over and over again, and that is the importance of ritual mm. to what's happening here. So, um, so can you talk a little bit about that for you? What's interesting about this sort of idea of so- practice? of sociability as kind of battle preparation specifically why is it important here and elsewhere in the book for us sure. to think in terms of ritual so for, first of all i'll say that toyotomi hideyoshi i think is one of the better known individual figures in japanese history he's so flamboyant and so fascinating as a kind of rags to riches story and his his cultural activities are actually fairly well known um even the more kind of uh, conservative political biographies of Hideyoshi acknowledge that um, his employment of the tea master Sanorikyu, his commissioning of no plays in which he was the star and also the subject, um, his, his incredible lavish palaces were all really significant moments of cultural patronage in Japanese history. But I think that there has been a tendency to, to link that those uh, activities to the flamboyance of Hideyoshi's character himself, right? Here's this man who started out essentially a kind of warrior peasant, rose up through the ranks to the point where he tried to conquer China. And he was forcing people to commit suicide right and left. He was a tyrant. He really became a kind of megalomaniac. Therefore, the cultural practices with which he's associated must just be the one-off wacky things that this guy liked to do, right? I think is the way that, unfortunately, his activities have been sometimes understood. And so part of what I'm trying to do in the book and also in this chapter is say, Hideyoshi may be the loudest and the most kind of in-your-face of the various um, warlord cultural patrons of this era, but he is, in fact, working in a tradition that goes back, as I, as I write about in the first chapter, all the way to the 15th century, and that his peers are engaged in as well. And so looking at the gift exchanges that Ieyasu engages in when he goes to Kyushu uh, to help run the castle that is serving as the base for the Imjin War, the you know this devastating, uh, what is often called Hideyoshi's invasions of Korea, this devastating conflict that destabilized all of East Asia. Ieyasu never traveled to Korea as part of that conflict, uh, but he was key to the management of the, the war on the Japanese side for several years, uh, although a lot of what the documents record is that he was doing tea and writing letters and sending people gifts. So I wanted to show that those practices had a role outside of the realm of Hideyoshi's particular form of pageantry. But I also think that you can start to understand in those small acts of social interaction, those small acts of ritual behavior, that what warriors accomplish through that work is the maintenance and the calibration of relationships. That in these warrior bands where hierarchy matters a lot, because if the guy on the horse at the front of a troop of men going into battle orders you to flank on the right and everybody 
runs off to the left, you're going to lose, right? So knowing who's in charge and knowing what commands to follow in a, in a, in a wartime warrior organization matters a lot. So I, I actually think that these acts of sociability, these cultural practices and rituals represent a way of constantly kind of checking and verifying and recalibrating those relationships so that they're fine-tuned, so that everyone knows where they stand. Um, now, what's frustrating about this, and, and I, I imagine some readers will, will think this, is that we don't have a kind of formula or menu for what the valence of those rituals is. So we don't know why a tea ceremony on one occasion why a banquet on another occasion? Why does one warrior vassal receive a falcon as a gift, but a different warrior vassal receives a, a tea caddy? Um, we, we don't have, at least I didn't, encounter any sources that laid it out. You know, I want the kind of dummy's guide to gift giving and sociability in the 16th century that would help us to understand um, the 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 kind of math of it, you know, uh, and and a number of people have commented when I've given talks about this, um, you know, how did it work? And and I can observe it, but I, I unfortunately can't uh, kind of deconstruct it. Mm -hmm. But still, it's fascinating, right? And just kind of giving us a picture of wartime preparations and the sort of battle that includes this, even if right. we don't, you know, necessarily know the prescriptive rules is itself right. an important contribution. I hope so. So the period of Ieyasu's five months in Kyoto after retiring as a shogun and before he moved to Edo saw him doing lots of political work, but that work looked like socializing and cultural patronage. And you take us into this at the end of this chapter. Now, as we move from this chapter to the next, we follow Ieyasu and we follow him, um, I think, into a really fascinating description of his interest in and, and a broader interest in and the sort of politics and cultural significance of falconry. So the chapter focuses, chapter four, on the falconry activities of Ieyasu, who has been called, quote, a first-rate falcon fetishist. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's not, that's something to be known for. Now, um, there's lots, this is a super fascinating chapter, okay? And I want to highlight this in particular for listeners who might be um, especially interested, not just in material culture and the history of objects and circulation, but in the history of animals um, and animal husbandry specifically. Um, there's some really, really interesting stuff here that's um, specifically focused on that. So let's actually kind of open this up. Um, falconry is not necessarily a topic um, that, you know, people immediately might think of when they think of material culture um, and kind of gift exchange, right, and objects and these figures. For you, why is falconry such a significant part of this conversation? And what are for you some of the most important ways that falconry practices resonate with the kind of collecting and hostage exchange and gift exchange that the book has examined? up to now so it's it's interesting in some ways falconry paying attention to falconry helped me to pay attention to hostage exchange so i actually hmm. arrived at the realization that um the the kind of you know asymmetrical control that these warlords had over human bodies was related to the huge collections of art via an interest in falcons and the exchange of falcons. So there's a there's a famous um, portrait, uh, posthumous portrait of Ieyasu as a deity uh, that I have examined in, a, in an article and that appears in this book um, in which he is shown kneeling on a veranda surrounded by swords, ceramics, and a painting of a falcon. And I kind of came to realize that this was a really useful table of contents to the material culture in his life. Not paintings, but falcons, that, that he had an enormous sort of stable of falcons and was constantly receiving them and giving them, and he employed massive numbers of, of um, falcon handlers and trainers, uh, and that it was part of the gift economy of this period. Um, and, and I think that it, it is, in a way, the link between something like hostage exchange and 
collecting, say, T-bulls, because falcons, on the one hand, um, were easily exchangeable, far more easy to exchange than humans. They're, they're relatively compact. You can, um, you know, you have to keep them healthy, but you can send them far distances. Uh, and then you can, you can fetishize them the way you fetishize uh, a beautiful artwork in your possession. Um, but they also do work that is similar to the work of the warrior, right? You train them to kill and you, you let them practice in a contained environment. Uh, a, a professional falcon trainer would do this work. And then when a falcon is ready, you journey out into the field, not the battlefield in this case, an actual pastoral kind of mountain uh, valley or something. And the, the, the laborers who are part of the expedition will locate prey. They might even place the prey, a swan or a duck or a goose or something. And then the Lord who has the falcon on his wrist will send it off uh, to kill the prey and bring it back. Uh, and then if you catch a bunch of, of, of birds, you feed your followers with the spoils of your, of your hunt. Um, so it, it somehow connects all these different um, political practices and cultural practices that I, I um, saw in the documentary evidence from this period. Um, and it, for me, I haven't studied this particular kind of non-human actor before. Uh, it was a real challenge to work on animals, and I learned so much from it. Um, and in particular, the work of a historian who you and I both know, Marcy Norton, mm -hmm. um, who works on Native American history and its connection to, to Europe. Um, she has this term avian vassals to talk about falcons um, and the way that they move out of a Native American cultural and environmental context and into Euro a European one. Um, that was really helpful for me to think about the work and the labor of the falcon as being part of the, the kind of asymmetrical power of the warlord. Mm -hmm. And everyone should read her stuff on chocolate and oh, consumables. So yeah. shout out to Marcy Norton. Yes. <laughs> so the the chapter, I mean, I actually would love to talk with you about um, this chapter for like two or three more hours, not even one hour because it's go. so much. <laughs> but we won't do that, right? Uh, but I just want to also mention that um, the chapter is also making some really interesting points about the various ways that falconry um, is really important um, in ways that might not be obvious, right? So you talk about the importance of falconry outings as excuses to accumulate large numbers of other objects, right? Like tea right. vessels, um, falconry um, uh, giving an opportunity or providing an opportunity for spectacular entertainments. You talk about the importance of land here and uh, right. the importance of sort of access to land where falconry could be practiced. And there's also a really important point in this chapter um, about the ephemerality, the relative ephemerality of falconry as a practice of material culture, which I think is an important conceptual kind of issue that comes up here that I wish we had more time to talk about. And I just want to mm. highlight that, right? Thank you. Um, um, because there's, there's all kinds of implications that come from that. If I could just say very briefly that we're in a, a kind of golden age of falconry studies in Japan. Falconry has been almost completely ignored historically. I try to um, sort of historiographically in Japan, I should say, and I try to very briefly make the point that perhaps that's because falcons disappear mm -hmm. and, and don't remain in the museum like tea objects and swords, that maybe our, our historical imagination is shaped more by material culture than we realize. Um, but fortunately, we are now um, in a period when a lot of Japanese historians are doing really great work on falconry in pre-modern Japanese history. And I think we'll start to see more people working in English on this. So this chapter, I hope, is the, um, the kind of, uh, you know, prelude to, to real serious scholarship being done on falconry in Japan. Awesome. Now, as we move from this chapter to the next, we move from falcons and birds and bird parts to body parts and swords. So this is really interesting. Um, and the next chapter, chapter five, um, is interesting not just because um, it's a chapter about severed heads and swords, right? So who doesn't like <laughs> that? But it's also a chapter that puts these two objects um, into kind of necessary conversation with each other, which is going to become important down the road in the book 
um, because putting, reminding us that the history of swords and the history of severing people's body parts, right, taking their heads off, taking their ears off, um, those histories are interconnected histories. And so when we see a sword, like in a museum on the wall, often that really violent, bloody, like fundamental nature of how that sword or, you know, the swords that it was um, kind of collected with um, came to be and were used often gets washed out of the story. And so the, yeah. this is putting the sword back into context um, in an important way that does not just historical work, but also political work and, and social work here. So chapter five takes readers into the two largest battles of Ieyasu's career as a way to get at the significance of rituals around these objects, right? Rituals of head taking and practices of sword collecting. Now it argues that these practices with heads and swords, in the words of the book, help structure hierarchy and power relations within the warrior class. It also treats war as, and again, this is the words of the book, a semi-ritualized act through which war warrior society was unmade and reconstituted and as an inherently social practice, right? So war is not just about um, big famous guys pulling out their swords and like one of them wins. War is a social practice. And that's yes. so the importance of ritual and the importance of the social become, uh, really come out very strongly here. So yeah. let's go into these battles very briefly um, just to talk about the heads and the swords. The Battle of Sekigahara, this was in 1600. Um, this is a battle where you talk about, um, in, in terms of the aftermath, taking heads as a kind of performance review. Right. So can you talk about this? What do you think is most important and interesting about this case? Sure. So for one of the most famous battles in all of Japanese history, pro- probably the most famous if you were to actually tabulate how many textbooks it's mentioned in, there there is not a lot written about the Battle of Sekigahara in English. And I, I in the earlier version of the manuscript, I, of course, wrote this long, incredibly you know, lavish description of the battle, which was great fun to research and write, but but in the end didn't really do anything for us. It didn't tell us anything new. And I realized that part of what was significant about the battle was that it lasted just a, you know, a morning and an afternoon. So it wasn't that long. And it involved huge numbers of people. But then they dispersed fairly quickly once the victory of the Tokugawa side was was determined. And that there were a number of key points in the battle when sort of ritual behavior mattered. And I talk about that in the chapter. Um, But a lot of people lost their lives, you know, hundreds, possibly thousands of of men uh, were killed. And that's a, that is inherently a process of, of unmaking order, right? Of, of tearing down, um, a social group, you know, people who, you know, people who you fought alongside, people who you have banqueted with have just been killed sometimes with you standing right next to them. Uh, and the, the, the head examination ceremony, the Kubijiken strikes me as a, as a very sensible and practical response in which the, the victors and, and the survivors uh, at the top level of the warrior organization, sit down and present the evidence of their labor. Um, they present the heads that they have taken from the highest ranking commanders on the enemy side. And they receive congratulations. They might receive criticism. Um, they might be prom- you know, made certain promises at that moment, which only a year later they would receive in the form of a new grant of land or um, a transfer to a different domain. But it, 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 I think it's a way of making sense of the chaos and violence of the battle and of reminding those who participated, who may have witnessed horrible things and done horrible things. I mean, these men were, were I mean, they are, after all, presenting the heads of the warriors they killed and then chopped the heads off of. Um, it seems to remind, it seems to me that it reminds all those involved that there are incentives, that they've done good work, and that they should move forward. And um, I don't know. I think when we when we think about battle in the pre-modern period anywhere in the world, there's a very strong emphasis in, in, in our imagination and in our scholarship on the kind of primal quality of war. Um, but but this this seems to me like a, 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 a rational, if we can even use that word, and very practical way of fixing things that have just been deliberately broken. 
Now, how does the account of the sieges of Osaka, right, and this is 1614 to 1615, mm. help us understand something important about the material culture of swords in this context? Sure. So the Battle of Sekihara is when Tokugawa Ieyasu emerges uh, as victor, as the, the kind of new hegemon in the land. Um, and the battles at Osaka Castle in 1614 and 15 are when uh, he and his son, the shogun Tokugawa Hiretada, and their enormous armies um, finally and comprehensively eliminate the threat of the Toyotomi completely. And th- as I talk about in the beginning of the book and then revisit here, they, they send uh, vassals into the ashes of the castle to retrieve the shards and fragments of, of meibutsu or of famous objects. Um, and the examples that I could find were were tea caddies, ceramic tea caddies, and swords. Um, the tea caddies are mended using lacquer. Uh, lacquer can be made to look exactly like glazed ceramic. So, as you noted at the very beginning of our talk, they're indistinguishable from from just solid ceramic objects. Um, but the swords can be reforged, and then the name and the history of the sword is preserved, even if the object is essentially a new refurbished model. Um, and and this allowed. Ieyasu in this case, or the Tokugawa, maybe we should say, to sort of symbolically possess the collection of the Toyotomi, or at least what was left of it. Um, and, and if these objects have agency, then you can imagine a sword that had once been owned by the Toyotomi floating around out there during a Tokugawa government could be a threat. Someone could, could take that object and invest it with belief that the Tokugawa could be overthrown. And this is a very, again, a very kind of sensible way of preventing that from occurring and adding to the enormous collection of swords that the Tokugawa already had. So the sword can be a weapon. It can be used to remove heads. It can be an object of gift exchange. It can be, a, um, in this case, um, a way of erasing the memory of your defeated em- uh, enemies. Great. Now, as we move from the swords and the severed heads into the next chapter, we move into a chapter, chapter six, on the deification of Ieyasu after his death in 1616. Now, this chapter focuses on the material culture associated with his life in several practices that legitimated Tokugawa authority, mortuary rituals, pilgrimages, um, the circulation of documents and objects about and associated with him. Um, And one of the reasons this becomes really important is that you're showing here that the way these practices and objects were um, enacted and circulated and represented in this earlier period continues to shape how um, Ieyasu is thought about and how the Tokugawa is thought about afterwards. So the chapter's arguing here that the representation of his life at key moments in this period establishes conventions that continue even now to determine how we understand his role in founding the early modern state. Hmm. And you, um, after making this point, you raise a question um, that I'd like to ask you to just talk a little bit about as a way of kind of briefly opening up this chapter before we move on. Can the hagiography be separated from the biography? And if hmm. it can, should it be? <laughs> and so can you talk about that a little bit? Why is, um, what do you think is important and interesting about that question in this particular context? Yeah, well, I, so I... I think that there is in the modern cultural landscape a tendency to talk about this era of the late 16th, early 17th century in terms of um, these warlords almost as if they were sort of rock stars. And, And it's quite common in Japan these days to find young men and women who are fans of one or another of these warlords. Mm. Oh, I'm a Hideyoshi fan. He was the best. And I always go to the museums where his stuff is displayed. And I read this or that manga and watch that or this or that anime. Um, And as though it was a kind of popularity contest and you were voting for class president, people take sides. Um, And this is this is fascinating for lots of reasons, but one of the things it does is it, I think it really obscures um, things that I've talked about already in the book, uh, contingency, the role of um, non-human agents, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it also ignores the fact that Ieyasu won. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm not, I'm not rendering any kind of value judgment. I don't think that means he was great or that we should like him. But 
if anyone in Japanese history can be said to have won, it was definitely him. He survived, first of all. He had all these sons who then could become shoguns and daimyo of this domain, warlord of that domain. And he became a god, right? He underwent this process of apotheosis. And despite the fact that very little has been written about this in, in, in English, he became one of the most important deities of the entire Tokugawa period, a kind of cult deity for the warrior class who was worshipped certainly by the Tokugawa and all of their allies and vassals, but even in distant domains that were really uh, ruled by, by warlords who historically had been the enemies of the Tokugawa, they still set up shrines to Ieyasu as well by the end. And there were small festivals, small rituals in those shrines all across Japan throughout the, the rest of the Tokugawa period. So this is, first of all, simply an amazing historical phenomenon that we have not paid enough attention to. Um, I mean, imagine if there was a, a, a king of you know England who had become one of the most important saints in the country that people had worshipped for hundreds of years. Surely we would have at least one book about that in English. Um, and this has almost never been written about at all in English. So it's just calling attention to it was something I thought was important. But as a historian... I find it disturbing that we haven't paid more attention to the deification of Ieyasu and the, the, the consequences, I think, for the writing of history in Japan. Because, first of all, many of the document collections that we use were compiled by the Tokugawa or, or scholars who worked for the Tokugawa who worshipped Ieyasu as a god and therefore, I think, must have editorialized, must have um, dealt with Gongen-sama, as he was called, the you know the great avatar, uh, differently than other historical subjects. Um, likewise, in the modern period, as we'll probably talk about, a lot of the production of catalogs and exhibitions and documentary collections occurs in a small community of people who still worship Ieyasu as a deity, mm-hmm. um, and of course, that doesn't mean that everything that has been done in that context is compromised. But surely it's worth at least calling our attention to and asking the question, um, if we lose something by not highlighting uh, the the different kind of worldview that probably exists among those studying the history of Ieyasu, when one of the deities in the landscape of gods for them was Ieyasu. Right. Um, so I, uh, I, I, I think it is a problem. Um, and, and I think that we can see examples in the scholarship in Japanese, in particular on Ieyasu, of people being insufficiently attentive to the possibility that what we think we know about Ieyasu today uh, is a little shallower because of that later editorializing. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. And the, the chapter also has a, um, a really nice discussion that we won't have time to talk about, but I just want to signal here of the modern apotheosis of Ieyasu in the founding of the Tokugawa Art Museum in Nagoya in 1935 by one of his descendants, who mm. was um, a philanthropist and a colonial administrator. So there's um, a really interesting thread of um, actually museum studies or kind mm. of a look at museums and modern museums specifically that moves from the end of chapter six into the epilogue. Um, so the epilogue, I'm just going to very briefly mention this um, uh, because we actually, if you can believe it, have come to the end of our hour, right? We're at our conclude. This has gone really, really fast. There's so much to talk about. But the epilogue actually looks very carefully and very critically. Um, and an, by critical, I don't necessarily mean negative. I mean critical in the sense of let's look at this um, uh, carefully and thoughtfully at modern practices of museum display in post-war Japan. So the epilogue looks at new social lives of bits of Ieyasu's material culture, um, and it's particularly critical of these exhibitions. It talks, um, among other things, about the ways that particular ways of depicting um, Ieyasu's material culture might be imbricated in a kind of nationalism or monolithic depictions of Japanese culture and history. Um, and you talk about this also just to kind of think back to or gesture back to something we've already talked about. Um, you talk about this specifically in the example of the way swords are displayed as a kind of sanitizing of a history of violence um, that you know gets taken away from these swords when they are taken away from this historical context of how they were used and put on a wall. So yeah. did you, um, as a way of just kind of bringing this to a close, Morgan, did you want to say anything um, about that to kind of wrap this up? 
No, I mean, I guess I'll just say that I, in a lot of my work, I am critical of practices of connoisseurship and museum display. And I, I just, I, I always try to say this explicitly, and sometimes I forget. I do that not because I don't like museums, but because I love museums. Mm-hmm. And I think they're incredibly powerful, um, incredibly meaningful places in which all different kinds of education occur. And I, I I want museums to take that burden very seriously. They do, of course, curators do incredible work. Um, but I think sometimes there are practices, especially when we're working with a country like Japan that is so interested in preserving a particular version of the representation of its national heritage, there are times when we are given a prepackaged kind of narrative about history that we need to problematize, we need to push back against. And and I think that the display of samurai art, as it's often called, um, is one area where we really need to push back. So Morgan, there's so much we could talk about, right? If we had another hour, um, but we are at our conclusion. Is there anything in particular that didn't come up or that we didn't have a chance to get to, but that you'd like to mention um, for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Um, no, I, I think we've covered most of the topics I was interested in covering. I mean, I think it. I think Tokugawa Ieyasu, you know, who died 400 years ago as of 2016, is a really major world figure who it is worth studying. Uh, and his age and all the different people who who were his peers are also fascinating and worth studying. Um, and and I would like, I would love to see more people uh, engage with with his biography. And I'm and I feel there's a part of me that feels bad that I didn't write an easily consumable biography. Um, but I think for scholars of East Asia, focusing more of our attention on the relationship between culture and politics, on the relationship between art and violence, um, especially in the pre-modern era, but looking at how that spills over into modern museological practices as well uh, is worth our time. So this is in some ways more a plea to my field to take those, those matters seriously. Um, and, and I hope someone else can write a readable biography that, that will make Ieyasu an accessible subject for more people. And maybe that person will be future you. Um, <laughs> we'll see. So, but that person is not current you, right? That's not what you're necessarily. No, yeah, no, I, so. I don't think so. But what are you working on now? What's currently um, inspiring you? What are you passionate about? I'll try to be brief. I know I, I talk too much. Um, no, no, it's fine. I, I, racked by guilt uh, by having done these two projects on elites, I am now finally writing a project that is more of a social history, although it continues to um, use material culture as its primary form of, of sources. Um, I'm looking at castle towns that were destroyed in the 16th century in the civil wars of this, of this you know, of this era that, that these men that we've been talking about led. I'm, I'm, it's kind of a book about losers. It's a, it's kind of a book about the people who didn't profit from the unification, but resisted it. And it's an attempt to call attention to conflict in Japanese history to, to note that although there is a very strong culture of celebrating the beautiful deaths of those from the, the Genpei War, you know, the the end of the Heian, the start of the Kamakura period, the, the beautiful warriors who lost their lives in that battle are celebrated in poetry and in, in theater. But the, the men and women who died in the civil wars of the 16th century, especially those communities that were completely wiped off the face of the earth by Oda Nobunaga and Toyotomi Hideyoshi, are basically forgotten. And I think using archaeological evidence from the castle towns that were destroyed, we can paint a really interesting picture of their daily lives. And then try to understand what it means for all of that to come to a very sudden end when those communities are destroyed. So it's, it's a project that I haven't, I haven't gotten deep enough into to even know what it will be called, but it's, it's basically about castle towns that were lost to the tides of civil war. So thank you for taking time away from that and go finish that book now (laughs) so that I can interview you about that. And I can ask you what this book, what is this book about? And you can say, it's a book about losers. Yes. (laughs) That's the best thing ever. Morgan, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure and congratulations on a great book. Thank you, Carla, for this interview and for all the work you do on the the podcasts that you run. You've been listening to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Thanks very, very much for joining us, and we'll catch you next time.